friends, we've seen that the power of fire magic, fire sorcery, the power of R'hllor, if you will, is indeed capable of raising the dead. Thoros raises Beric from the dead no less than six times using the so-called last kiss. Not the Lord's kiss that John gave you grit in the cave, mind you. You don't ever want to give that one to a dead person, and you definitely shouldn't expect it to resurrect them no matter how well you do it. Uh, anyways, when Beric later grows tired and cranky after these six resurrections, he then himself uses the last kiss to pass on his flame of life to the desecrated corpse of Lady Catelyn, transforming her into the ghastly, yet animated, Lady Stoneheart. Melisandre will likely be giving this kiss to Jon Snow's corpse in The Winds of Winter, and George R. R. Martin himself has spoken of Beric as a fire white. Yes, he used those words exactly, fire white, and he referred to Beric as a foreshadowing for Jon. So this is definitely a magic that we want to understand. You may think you more or less know what it is. It's clearly a way to make fire whites, but it turns out there's a bit more to it than that, from its origins to its ultimate purpose to what it even is on a magical level. Once again, our attempt to understand something labeled as relorist magic will quickly lead us into talk of shadows and shadow binding. And here's where I recommend that you watch part one of the series before watching this one. As we laid out all the many connections between the seemingly separate orders of the relorists and the shadow binders upon which we will be building today. The second video in this series was called Fire Others, so I'm assuming you've watched that since it's like maybe my best clickbait title of all time. And we'll be building on those ideas today as well. So my friends, though the night is dark and full of terrors, your friend David Lightbringer is here to guide you through with a torch of insight or whatever it is that we're doing here. In any case, please make sure your subscribe bell is set to all notifications, otherwise you might miss videos or live streams when they happen. As you know, I say it every time, make sure it's there though, they, they change it on you. We've got a great little myth friend family forming on the streams, and I've been working hard to raise the quality of those, so come and hang out with us if you have been missing the streams lately. And I know everyone likes to produce videos, but of course I can only do a couple of those a month, and the chapter read-alongs that we've been doing lately have really been a great way to combine discussion of the main plot with the sort of symbolic and mythical analysis that you guys know and love me for, yes. Thanks for clicking the like button and leaving a comment on the video, and now let's raise the dead. Oh yes, my undertaker! All right, so we've actually got a pretty good idea about how the last kiss works, because it's one of the rare examples where we get an explanation by the person performing the magic. Thoros more or less tells us exactly what he did to raise Beric from the dead in a storm of swords, so let's check it out. I have no magic, child, only prayers. That first time, his lordship had a hole right through him and blood in his mouth. I knew there was no hope. So when his poor torn chest stopped moving, I gave him the good god's own kiss to send him on his way. I filled my mouth with fire and breathed the flames inside him, down his throat to lungs and heart and soul. The last kiss it is called, and many a time I saw the old priests bestow it on the Lord's servants as they died. I had given it a time or two myself, as all priests must, but never before had I felt a dead man shudder as the fire filled him, nor seen his eyes come open. It was not me who raised him, my lady. It was the Lord. Relore's not done with him yet. Life is warmth, and warmth is fire, and fire is God's and God's alone. 
Now, setting aside the uh, slightly preachy bit at the end there, this is really a fascinating piece of information, right? The last kiss is apparently doing something here that it doesn't usually do. It seems that all priests of R'hllor must learn to perform this ritual, which is intended to usher the souls of the dead servants of R'hllor into the afterlife. It usually does consist of some small amount of magic. You fill your mouth with fire and you breathe it down into the lungs of the deceased, presumably purifying them or something along those lines, since Thoros speaks of the breathed fire reaching the soul of the deceased. But never before had Thoros felt the dead person shudder and awaken to zombiehood. That apparently was completely unexpected in Thoros's mind. He's never even heard of it, seemingly, so once again, just as was the case with the fire other transformation magic, it seems that we are dealing with either a lost or a very, very secret relorist ritual, and an important one at that, raising the dead. I would guess that this last kiss ritual almost certainly originated as a resurrection spell and was then carried on as a transition ritual for the deceased long after the time of raising the dead had passed. I just feel like that makes a lot more sense than the idea that a fairly tame relorist ritual is just suddenly making zombies when it never has before. No, I think the resurrection ritual must be the original forgotten purpose of the spell. And this would, of course, be very similar to the idea that the fiery tattoos, clothing, and weapons of the Relorists are actually a remnant of the forgotten tradition of people transforming into fire others. Indeed, if there were once powerful mages who could transform themselves into immortal fire entities and raise the fallen from death, you can see why a religion of fire worshippers might spring up around them. And verily I say unto thee, immortal fire entities who could raise the dead with ease were indeed the origin of Relorism. It's well known that the Relorists revere a certain fellow known as the Warrior of Fire, aka Azor High, and of course see his prophesied return as the salvation of the world. Melisandre thinks Stannis is Azor High reborn, though she'll soon believe in Jon Snow, it seems while the Red Temple in Volantis is openly proclaiming Daenerys as the fulfillment of the Azor High reborn prophecy. But the point is that all Relorists see Azor High as their savior figure. And what do they believe about Azor High? Well, this quote is from a Tyrion chapter of A Dance with Dragons, where he and Halden Halfmaester are listening to a Red Priest speak in Selhoris, which is just a little upriver from Volantis, where the main Red Temple is located. The priest is calling on the Valentines to go to war, the half-maester told him. But on the side of right, as soldiers of the Lord of Light, R'hllor, who made the sun and stars and fights eternally against the darkness. Nyasos and Malakwo have turned away from the light, he says, their hearts darkened by the yellow harpies from the east. He says, dragons, I understood that word, he said dragons. Aye, the dragons have come to carry her to glory, her, Daenerys. Halden nodded. Benero has sent forth the word from Volantis. Her coming is the fulfillment of an ancient prophecy. From smoke and salt was she born to make the world anew. She is Azor High returned, and her triumph over darkness will bring a summer that will never end. Death itself will bend its knee, and all those who die fighting in her cause shall be reborn. Do I have to be reborn in this same body? asked Tyrion. Yes, Tyrion, that's exactly what we're talking about here, being reborn in your same dead body. This actually isn't generic salvation or afterlife talk here. 
A promise of heavenly reward for the loyal soldiers of Azor High. No, I think that when they speak of death itself bending the knee to Azor High, warrior of fire, and of people who fight for him being reborn, we should think in very literal terms here. Azor High and his mages may well have actually been warriors of fire, as in walking human torches. And perhaps those who died fighting alongside him were indeed reborn, right there on the spot just as Beric was. This would mean that Azor High and the magic wielders of his day are in fact the origin of and or the inspiration for the Relorist religion. And that would certainly make a ton of sense, wouldn't it? It would certainly explain why they're so concerned about the second coming of Azor High, a figure whose legend comes from Ashai, which in turn gives us another reason why the Red Priests want to go to Ashai to study. Their religion is founded or heavily influenced by a guy from Ashai. This would also explain why Fire Whites seem capable of lighting their swords on fire with magic, just as the original Azor High was said to wield a burning sword. This next quote is from Beric's legendary fight with the Hound in a storm of swords, and I'll be pulling selected lines here that describe Beric's sword. Unsmiling, Lord Beric laid the edge of his long sword against the palm of his left hand and drew it slowly down. Blood ran dark from the gash he made and washed over the steel, and then the sword took fire. Lord Beric himself waited silent, calm as still water, his shield on his left arm and his sword burning in his right hand. Lit from below, his face was a death mask, his missing eye a red and angry wound. The sword was aflame from point to cross guard, but Dondarrion seemed not to feel the heat. He stood so still, he might have been carved of stone. Well, it's uh, certainly nice that Beric doesn't have to murder any women to light his sword on fire. He just uses his own fiery, magical blood. Now, in general, it is hard to know which parts of the Azor High myth are literal and which are symbolic, but the fact that we do have a magical, relore-powered Firewhite lighting his sword on fire with magic in the current story kind of suggests that people really did have flaming swords in the ancient fight against the others. And from the looks of Beric's sword, the Firewhite flaming sword magic is very powerful. Beric's Lightbringer isn't just on fire, but rather gushing fire. The flaming sword leapt up to meet the cold one, long streamers of fire trailing in its wake like the ribbons the hound had spoken of. Steel rang on steel. The flames swirled about his sword and left red and yellow ghosts to mark its passage. Each move Lord Beric made fanned them and made them burn the brighter until it seemed as though the lightning lord stood within a cage of fire. Is it wildfire? Arya asked Gendry. No, this is different. This is... Magic? She finished as the hound edged back. Now it was Lord Beric attacking, filling the air with ropes of fire, driving the bigger man back on his heels. Now that is the kind of flame-throwing fire weapon that could perhaps withstand the extreme cold that the others bring with them. A cage of fire. Well, that's just what you'd want to put a white walker in, right? You'll also notice the line about the flaming sword meeting, quote, the cold one, which conveys a layer of ice and fire, war for the dawn symbolism onto this fight, as does the fact that Beric's sword ultimately breaks 
just as the last hero's first sword broke against the cold of the others. I have, of course, speculated that the last hero himself became whited, potentially fire-whited like Barak. And again, you can see that the fire-white flaming sword magic seems basically tailor-made to stop the others. Barak's sword is common steel and therefore can't withstand the stress of the magical fire. But if a fire-white were to use a Valerian steel sword, such as John has, or perhaps the sword Dawn, which may have been the last hero's sword, well then you'd have an invincible fire weapon that could kill both whites by burning them with fire, as well as others with the magic of Valyrian steel, presumably being similar to Dragonglass, although we haven't tested that out yet. So you can see how it all kind of fits together. The Reloris preserve the prophecies and legends of Azor High and believe that he can raise the dead. And they just happen to know how to make fire whites that can light their swords on fire. They call Azor Ahai the warrior of fire and the champion of Relore, who is himself an embodiment of magical fire, basically. And they seem to know the secret of transforming people into fire others. And I want to tell you that in part four, we will take this idea further and ponder the possibility of such an army of fire sword wielding fire whites being created at the wall to fight the others in the upcoming War for the Dawn Infinity War, which is obviously coming at the end of the story. Now as to the question of why the Relorist last kiss is suddenly raising the dead, or perhaps raising the dead again. It's obviously nothing special to do with Thoros, who is essentially a well-meaning drunk who lights his sword on fire with wildfire for shits and giggles. It is, however, very interesting to see someone with a flaming sword raising the dead with fire magic. Perhaps this is another clue that the original reanimator was Azor High himself, right? All those who die fighting in his cause will be reborn. In their own bodies, Tyrion, yes. And then we have Beric, who of course raised Lady Stoneheart. So we can actually say that the only two people who have ever performed a fire resurrection, Thoros and Beric, had flaming swords. For that matter, Lady Stoneheart could eventually pass on her flame of life, as Beric did, and resurrect someone else. And look, there's a Valerian steel sword, Oathkeeper, right there in the cave. And gosh, isn't that a red sword? Just like Azor High's red sword of heroes. So even a Stoneheart last kiss resurrection event could feature a flaming sword, with Oathkeeper perhaps being lit on fire by the burning heart of Lady Stoneheart in what would be a fairly accurate parallel to the Nissa Nissa and Azor High Lightbringer forging ritual, as well as a kind of twisted retelling of the legend of King Arthur and the sword in the stone. Aha! Yes. And by the way, if I've never mentioned this before, the idea of the uh, Danes making Dawn from a meteorite is another reference to King Arthur and the sword in the stone. Instead of literally pulling the sword out of the stone, we are pulling the sword out of the meteorite by forging it from the meteorite. Needless to say, Jon Snow will almost certainly end up a fire white with a burning sword as well, since he dreams of defending the wall against icy undead foes with a red burning longclaw. But I'm saving the Jon talk for part four. Sexy Jon, keeping the people coming back for more, oh yes. In any case, the two most likely explanations for the unexpected potency of Thoros's fiery kisses would be... A, the nexus of dragon magic that exists between the return of dragons to the world and the return of the Red Comet, and or B, the fact that Westeros itself is a kind of magical continent, laced throughout with weirwood roots. Whatever the cause, magic in general is definitely making a comeback, right? The dragons hatched, the others are rising, 
All the young starklings were born skin changers. The pyromancer's spells are suddenly more potent. The glass candles are burning again in the house of Urathon Nightwalker, who's actually Euron, and so on. So it's not really surprising that old rituals like the Relorist Last Kiss would regain their lost power. And it's not surprising that it should happen in Westeros, which is, again, a magical, living continent. Indeed, there is some sense and precedent to the idea of dragon and fire magic being somehow amplified by the magical nature of Westeros, which we primarily associate with weirwoods, of course. We know that Melisandre's fire magic is somehow amplified by the magic of the wall, which she calls a hinge of the world, like a shy, even though the wall is made of ice and, of course, shot through with at least a couple of weirwoods. It's strongly implied that the ancient dragon lords of a shy, known as the Great Empire of the Dawn, came to Westeros for the purpose of learning the magics of the children of the forest. That's basically stated outright in the world of ice and fire as a major possibility. I have further theorized, based on massive amounts of symbolic evidence, take my word for it, or don't, you can just watch the Weirwood Goddess series, I guess, that Nissa Nissa was either a child of the forest, or maybe a female of the Green Man race, or a hybrid, a human hybrid of one of those two races, and that the dragon lord from a shine known as Azor High would have sought her out for his blood magic ritual precisely because of her connection to the Weirwoods. And by the way, this is one of the conclusions that I'm the most convinced of. So again, check out the Weirwood Goddess series. I think it's very, very solid. It's spelled out everywhere. Nissa Nissa was an elf woman tied to the Weirwoods. In any case, I think that Martin choosing to place Lord Beric, a fire white with a burning sword, inside a cave of weirwood roots is essentially a symbolic visual clue about the original Azor High coming to inhabit the weirwood net. And one could say the same about Martin choosing to make the old greenseer of the story a blood of the dragon person, Lord Bloodraven. And of course, there are only like a dozen major symbolic parallels between Beric and Bloodraven. Finally, we know that the Children of the Forest provided aid to the last hero and the first men of the Night's Watch when they defeated the others, including arming them with dragonglass. And of course, Azor High and Lightbringer are almost certainly wrapped up in the events of the last hero and the War for the Dawn. So once again, we have an example of some sort of important interaction between fire magic and the weirwood magic of the Children of the Forest. This pattern is even set to repeat at the end of the story, with John and Danny, of course, set to receive help from Bran, who is the new green seer of the story. And with John's resurrection being affected both by his skin changer nature and Melisandre's fire magic. So that all makes sense in my mind. There are a few good reasons why the last kiss might be working again, and the idea that it has something to do with Westeros and the Weirwoods jibes well with the idea that Brilorism finds its origin in the events of the Long Night and the defeat of the others with magical fire and weapons of fire, since obviously those events would have taken place in Westeros. But here's the question puzzling me. What is the last kiss exactly on the level of magical mechanics? Isn't it actually just another form of shadow binding? That's right, the last kiss may very well be yet another form of shadow binding. Think about what's really happening here when the last kiss is performed. Essentially, some remnant of what used to be Beric is being called back from somewhere, whatever the realm of the dead is in A Song of Ice and Fire, let's just say. And that remnant is then bound to his corpse, 
which is reanimated with fire magic. It's important to realize that Beric isn't actually brought back to life, though. As George R.R. R. Martin has made clear in an interview, he's a fire white, which George specifies as meaning that he doesn't have flowing blood or vital processes. Now, his hot black blood does come gushing out when he's wounded, but apparently George doesn't think about it as flowing and circulating like a normal person. And certainly, if his blood is able to light the sword on fire, then we have to say that the blood itself is carrying the magical firepower of Relore. So it's not regular blood, his body isn't alive, and that is why he's referred to as the Lord of Corpses. So when we see Beric, quote-unquote, what we're seeing actually is a corpse, which has been preserved and reanimated by fire magic, and it's being piloted by some slice of Beric's consciousness. I would call that slice a ghost or a shadow, and observe that it's essentially been called back from the death realm and bound to his corpse through the magic of the last kiss. Shadow binding, right? This also seems to be similar to what has happened to the zombified Night's Watch ranger known as Cold Hands, though he's an ice white and not a fire white. Like Beric, Cold Hands has no vital processes. His blood is congealed, and he doesn't need to eat or sleep. Because he isn't alive, Cold Hands is completely untouched by the extreme cold of the lands of always winter, though of course he fears the fire like any ice white. Also, he doesn't breathe. That's always a sure sign that someone is dead. And yet, Cold Hands is not the typical ice zombie with blue star eyes who is controlled by the others, but instead a conscious white who is on the side of the Night's Watch, Blood Raven, and the living in general. Somehow, his spirit or ghost or shadow was bound to his reanimated corpse. Someone has been doing shadow binding north of the wall, though they may not think of it as that. What's insightful is that Cold Hands is apparently stopped from passing the wall by the same sort of magical wards that keep Melisandre's shadow baby out of Storm's End, which implies that they are similar beings. When Sam is explaining to Bran and company why Cold Hands couldn't come through the Black Gate at the Nightfort, he relays to them the words of Cold Hands, saying, The wall is more than just ice and stone, he said. There are spells woven into it, old ones and strong. He cannot pass beyond the wall. Now compare that to what Melisandre says about Storm's End, which, like the Wall, is associated with Bran the Builder and apparently set with spells. This Storm's End is an old place. There are spells woven into the stones, dark walls that no shadow can pass, ancient, forgotten, yet still in place. Old spells woven into very old and magical structures, the Wall and Storm's End, which are apparently designed to keep out shadows and dead things, from the shadow baby to cold hands and the other whites to the others themselves, potentially. This indicates a certain general similarity between Melisandre's shadow babies and the conscious whites like Beric or cold hands. And since the remnant of the person piloting the reanimated corpse of someone like cold hands, Beric, or Stoneheart can certainly be considered a shadow. It seems to me that the last kiss is indeed an act of shadow binding, literally binding the shadow left behind by a dead person to their magically reanimated corpse. I believe that's also why we see Beric and Lady Stoneheart acting like classic ghosts, being obsessed in death with the last thing that they were preoccupied with in life. Beric, for example, died defending the people of the Riverlands and then continues to do that very thing as a zombie, even wearing the nickname Wisp of the Woods, with Wisp being another word for ghost. 
Cat, meanwhile, died drowning in the grief of a murdered and betrayed family, and then as a zombie goes about extracting unholy revenge on the Freys and their allies who carried out the Red Wedding, and perhaps working towards a re-establishment of the Tullys in Riverrun and the Starks in Winterfell. Even Cold Hands, who's been carrying out his Night's Watch oaths for untold decades and maybe centuries, fits the pattern as well, though his motivations may be more complex and tied to ancient mysteries of their own. And by the way, check out the Cold Hands stream in the Mythical Character Studies playlist for more on Cold Hands. I'd also like to quickly point out that the fact that Mel is able to pass the wards at the Wall and Storm's End without any trouble is yet more proof that she is not undead and not a shadow, but rather some sort of human undergoing fire transformation. So it might have seemed crazy at first to call the Relorist Last Kiss Shadowbinding. Crazy old LML, what's he going on about again? But now that we've taken a look at the magical acts of Shadow Baby creation in part one, and now the last kiss in this video, we can see that they both seem to combine elements of Relorist fire magic and shadowbinding. The Shadow Baby birthing is the most likely example of shadowbinding, and it's performed by a red priestess of Relore who glows in the dark when giving birth, and who draws from people's life fires in order to make the shadows. While the last kiss is a standard Relorist practice, which seems to bind people's shadows to their resurrected bodies. The more we look at all of this, the more it seems that there must be a common origin between these two now separate orders. And this common origin can pretty much only be something to do with the magical power of Azor High and the other magicians connected to Ashai and the events of the Long Night. This, again, would explain why the Red Temple instructs some of their priests and priestesses to become shadowbinders, and why the Relorist Resurrection Ritual, the Last Kiss, may actually be a form of shadowbinding that simply isn't referred to as that. Someone better tap Thoros on the shoulder and let him know he needs to add Shadowbinder to his list of titles. Stick it right on the business card there, huh? Now the final piece of this puzzle lies in the fact that our favorite fire other in training, Melisandre of Ashai, is destined to perform both a last kiss style fiery resurrection at the wall, as well as some sort of even worse than before shadow baby creation, all as she blunders around in the snow and dark searching for Azor High Reborn, Relore's Chosen. So we should see all of this really twisted magic relating to flame and shadow come to some sort of fiery grand finale of abomination and horror. And isn't that just the sort of thing that we look for in A Song of Ice and Fire? So join me next time for the last video in this series, part four, Chosen of Relore, and I will show you what all of this really cool and fun discussion of magical mechanics actually means for the story, which of course is the most important thing, the heart in conflict. No one said that heart can't be a fiery heart.